communities can enable deployment of their own networks. They can build critical mass and infrastructure. They can they can build assets that are then theirs to use over time in whatever way they see fit. Hello, you are listening to the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. This time on the podcast, Chris interviews Joanne Hovis, president of CTC Technology and Energy. CTC recently published a detailed study on strategies aimed at developing gigabit community networks. The study examines issues such as maximizing assets, local policies that facilitate network deployment, and working in the public-private partnership. In this episode, Chris and Joanne talk about the paper and some of CTC's key findings. Communities interested in improving their connectivity options can learn from this and similar resources. By heeding the challenges, strategies, and victories of predecessors, communities can avoid potential mistakes and capitalize on proven tactics. Here are Joanne and Chris. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm speaking with Joanne Hovis, the president of CTC Technology and Energy. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Joanne, uh, a lot of our listeners may know you as uh, the immediate past president of NATOA, the National Association of Telecommunications Officers and Advisors, a wonderful organization on many levels. Uh, but today we're going to talk about your, your private life, uh, what you do uh, as a business and, uh, and uh, this report that you've done uh, through the company. Um, can you start by just telling us what you do and uh, why you decided to do this report? Sure, I'd love to. So we're um, a communications, engineering, and business planning consultancy, and what we've done, we're a 30-year-old company. I've had the company for 17 years, and our area of focus is to support uh, state, local, tribal government, and nonprofits in deploying new communications networks. And 15 years ago, the focus of that was on government use networks, institutional and internal use, but as the years have passed. It has become more and more of a priority for localities to try to build or enable networks that serve the public and that enable education, economic development, uh, aging in place, healthcare, all of the, the key outcomes that big broadband can um, enable for a community. And that's been the focus of most of our clients. So it's been a huge focus of our work. And we work on municipal and county initiatives where communities are building their own broadband networks to meet their needs and the needs of their um, members of their public. But we also work on public-private partnerships where communities look for strategies and ways that they can partner with the for-profit side of um, uh, the world and, and with nonprofits in their communities to try to enable these outcomes. Um, it's not a simple matter to develop these public-private partnerships. It's not always easy to figure out what the win-win scenarios are as between communities and for-profit entities. But increasingly in broadband, I think there are strategies emerging that are win-win. It's entitled Gigabit Communities, Technical Strategies for Facilitating Public or Private Broadband Construction in Your Community. Uh, so tell us, uh, tell us, uh, give us a very brief summary of it and why you decided to do it. 
you know, what we've seen over the past few years is more and more communities, and I think they probably number in the many hundreds at this point, looking at their existing fiber infrastructure and their conduit and other assets they have and saying, well, is there something we can do with our assets? We may not build our own fiber to the home network, but can these assets be used to facilitate private sector construction of fiber to the home? And as that question gets asked more and more and as communities think about leasing their excess capacity to private providers who are maybe looking at the business market or even the residential market, as they use it to incent new investment in fiber in their communities, we've seen some, or not, you know, go as far as to call best practices or really solid strategies for things that they can do. And this paper was an attempt to collect some of those strategies and talk about them from an engineering standpoint, describing what they look like um, and talk about how they might provide value to private partners or how they potentially move the needle for a community that's thinking that down the road it might operate its own network and this is how they can um, enable and, and add to their own assets. I should add, by the way, that um, it was Google that made it possible for us to write this paper. They um, they provided a sponsorship, but the content is entirely ours. It's an independent work. What is Dig Once? This is something that, that you go into great depth on, and I, I'm glad because a lot of times I hear about Dig Once, it's just this sort of cursory overview. So do you have a, a nice, concise definition for what you would describe as Dig Once? Let me start by saying that Dig Once is the single most powerful tool I know of that a city or town or county can use to get conduit and fiber into its community. Dig Once refers to a set of practices that would ideally be institutionalized and approved by a council or a mayor or at some very high level so that all agencies are on board and all community employees are on board that make sure that we are realizing the efficiencies of shared construction, that when a road is open or some kind of construction is happening in the public rights of way or there's a capital improvement project that the community is funding or there's private sector construction under any of those scenarios that the community takes advantage of that opportunity to make sure that communications infrastructure is put in at the same time. So it could be all kinds of scenarios. If you have a sewer replacement project, if you have a sidewalk replacement project, or if you're simply doing significant road repair, that is an opportunity to strategically place conduit or fiber or both for your community that you can then use yourselves for internal purposes or you can make available for lease to private sector entities who may be able to use it. There's also another variation on this strategy. This variation is one that's purely private sector. And what it does is the, the city or town would tell the private sector, anytime a road is open, whether from public or private construction, all private sector entities are given the opportunity to then place their own infrastructure. So they can come in, they can put in conduit, they can put in fiber, but they have to do it then. They won't have access to this road under other circumstances. And it's a motivator and an incentive to enable the, um, the private sector to build when um, the economics are at their absolute best. 
the city of Hong Kong has actually been the best example of how to use this strategy. They've been wildly successful. They don't build their own fiber or conduit. It's, that's not their model at all. But anytime a road is open, they require notification of all private sector communications companies, and those companies then have to get together. They have to work together. They have to allocate costs among each other and put in the infrastructure they need. But if they choose not to, um, a company that chooses not to participate when that road is open does not get to build in that road for the next two years. And in that way, Hong Kong has made sure that the companies are putting in infrastructure when the moment is right. And it's also reduced the wear and tear on the roads, the the cutting and repair of roads, which is very costly in the long run to a community because it shortens the life of the road. And frankly, it also reduces the disruption and the rights of way and the disruption to commerce and, and all the economic negatives that um, come from uh, you know, what happens when you have major construction on a road. You know, what I really like about your description there is you're, you focused on uh, dig ones at the local level. And I, I really think it's important to note that, you know, states may want to do this. Uh, the federal government's talked about it. But really where we need it is at that local level. That's where most of the opportunities are, and that's where I think these programs really make a difference. I really do agree with that. I think states and the federal government should be doing this. I think it's incredibly important that they do it, particularly since they so frequently look to localities to make infrastructure available. They should um, they should be doing the same. But this is something that a locality does not need to wait for the state or the federal government on. This is entirely within their own control. And it's um, it's not only not a cost center, I think it's a significant savings center. It's a very prudent measure that enables them to think about how to realize efficiencies through this process. Now, I would say that it's really important that this not be done in an ad hoc way because it's not helpful to have half a mile of conduit somewhere um, that's not connected to anything. You need a strategy. You need a plan. It's got to be engineered and mapped but a plan that takes into account all the upcoming capital improvement projects that are projected now for the next 10 years and that then designs a network of conduit around those upcoming projects that creates specifications for what that conduit or what that fiber would be and what the the construction parameters would be and then is deployed in stages as the opportunities arise you can get to a pretty significant critical mass of infrastructure over time in that way. And you're doing it at almost no cost relative to what the cost of that construction is. The incremental cost of putting in conduit when you've got the roads open for some other purpose is really marginal. The big cost is the labor and cutting that road. The conduit itself, very small matter. So I would call this a significant best practice, and I think that communities that have realized these benefits um, have have made big impacts in terms of um, their ability to build a lot of fiber infrastructure, either for internal use or to make available to private providers over time. There's a real importance to some areas in particular that we have to make sure we hit, and that's um, bridges, areas over waterways, areas crossing railroads um, along major roads and in the, the core of urban areas. You know, it, it, it can be difficult in some places to get all the stakeholders together and get the conduit in, but... 
there's some places that are just really high cost to get conduit and fiber in. In those those areas that are listed in the report that I just identified, to close a lane on a major bridge is a big deal. And so you want to make sure that you can avoid those sorts of things. And so at a, at a bare minimum, you need to make sure that you hit these key areas and you're aware of those. Oh, and one other one I would say is, is overpasses. You want to make sure that you have some ways of getting through overpasses because those can also be difficult to navigate around. That's exactly right. These are the key strategic areas that you want to try to get before the fact rather than after. Imagine the cost, to use your example of the overpass, the cost of trying to come in and put in that fiber, essentially to retrofit um, on with a, uh, um, a construction project and a piece of infrastructure that is that complex and that costly. But if it's done when that overpass is being built or when it's being repaired or when some other kind of infrastructure is being put through, then it's a much simpler matter. Sometimes even when it's just being painted, you can get it in there. Yes, exactly. Relatively simple projects can enable you to utilize dig once or build once strategies uh, that are really cost effective. And, and your example of the painting is a really good one. If you think about how difficult it's going to be to do a river crossing, if you have an emergency need to build that river crossing now, the cost could be enormous, assuming you can even get access to the bridge that goes across. Um, but if you're thinking about it in a strategic way now, planning for the next 10 years, you can take advantage of the opportunities that come along when they do. It's a very challenging strategy if it's driven by one agency of city government. I'll, I'll use the city as an example. So if this is the strategy of the IT department, that's wonderful. It's really helpful. Um, it's important. But they are going to be dependent on the help and the support of the public utilities folks, of the public works department, of the city engineer, of a range of different agencies of city government. And so it can't just be done by one agency. I would say the most important experience I can share about dig once is that this should be a policy at the legislative level, city council and mayor, to make a determination that this is a top priority, that it needs to happen, and there should be a coordinating group that includes all of the agencies I mentioned, because they're all going to be essential. And if they're not all working on it together, then the, the efficiencies that come from this are going to be much harder to realize if it's only the agenda of one agency rather than all. This, this report um, goes into a very deep level of information that I've rarely seen in these reports. And so I just want to quickly note a couple of things that we don't have time to talk about. Um, you talk a lot about what cities can do to make information available to other parties, uh, GIS maps and that sort of thing. Uh, you also talk about uh, the benefits of uh, code, city code uh, requiring in developments or perhaps even major retrofits that buildings have access um, built into them to make it easy for service providers to gain entrance to the building, both from the right-of-way to the building and then within the building to the individual units of the building. Uh, and so do you have anything you just want to briefly touch on there, or should we move on to the, the final major point I want to talk about? 
I'll say that you know it's the same insight as with Dig Once that if your community requires that when construction is underway or a major renovation is underway, the pathways are put in to get into the building and within the building for fiber optics. The same way as your code requires that the pathways be put in for other utilities, if it's done during construction or during major renovations, the incremental cost is marginal. If you have to come back and retrofit when somebody comes and wants to build fiber to the home or you as a city want to build fiber to the home yourselves, incredibly costly. So you know, have policies in place that make it possible to do this when it's inexpensive and before you desperately need it so you're not building it in a costly way in a hurry at the last minute, but you have it there when you need it. So I've done a, a series of posts about uh, Seattle and sort of the lo- some lessons learned that um, from Gigabit Squared in Seattle, and, and really that was just an excuse to talk about some things that that we know about in terms of how making these investments can help a provider, but they don't they don't guarantee it, right? That um, that you can do all these dig once a policies. But fundamentally, the economics are still very difficult for providers to build networks. Um, in the paper, you go through a, a scenario that you construct and estimate that by using a lot of these best practices, you can reduce the capital cost to a provider that's building a network by 8%. I think that's both significant and also a little disappointing. And so do you want to reflect a little bit on that 8%? These strategies are, are powerful and useful. They don't change the underlying economics of broadband construction, though, which is that the capital costs are enormous, particularly relative to the potential revenues. And that's the core problem we have with fiber to the home as an industry in this country. It's just really expensive to build. And all of these strategies, even if deployed under optimal circumstances and with great competence, are really only going to have a small impact. It's not just only 8% in our hypothetical, but it's only 8% of the outside plant construction costs. So it's 8% of one element of the cost of building and deploying a fiber-to-the-home network. It doesn't deal with the interior matters, the the equipment, um, the integration of that equipment, and so on. It's not a huge number. That said, it's a meaningful number, and it adds up in dollars. And it could be, no guarantee, no promise, but it could be a differentiator if there is a provider who is thinking about where to make an investment. This might be a slightly wiser investment, all other things being equal for that provider. And even if there is no provider who emerges based on these strategies, communities can enable deployment of their own networks. They can build critical mass and infrastructure. They can they can build assets that are then theirs to use over time in whatever way they see fit, whether it's private sector provision or public provision. It just adds to the choices and the options they have with time as gigabit services and beyond gigabit services become more and more important in the life of their community. They've been working toward meeting those needs, and they've been doing it through these prudent strategies, I'd say, in a very low-cost and high-impact way. 
I think that one of the things that I really liked about this paper and the way it really wrestled with these issues is that you talk about the 8%, but then you make a really important uh, insight. And that is that 8% can mean different things at different times. And one of the things that this does is it means that if you're starting a project in a city that has undertaken uh, these best practices, it may mean that you can start connecting customers and generating a revenue stream several months earlier. And and one of the important things in business isn't the cost of things. It isn't the you know it isn't a number of factors. It's timing. And and I think that's something that I'm I'm really impressed that you pulled out, which is that one of the ways that this makes a difference is that even if the costs don't change significantly, just the ability to pull in revenue more quickly can make your project more feasible. That's exactly right. You could see revenue start flowing relatively quickly from customers who are located close to. The, the infrastructure that the city is able to provide to that private partner. And that means that even during relatively early deployment stages, there may be some revenues that can be realized by that provider, which makes the economics of the build far more attractive potentially. So the, I just want to finish up with sort of the reality, which is that no matter what cities do, many cities are going to find that they're in a tough position that they don't have a partner beating down their doors. And so um, one of the, the key points you make in this paper is that, you know, if, uh, if, uh, if these strategies are going to make a difference with a partner, you have to have a partner that's really going to work with you. It's not just going to be uh, some massive cable company that suddenly de- decides it's going to deploy, um, you know, fiber optic network in your community. You know, one of the things I think about is that Baltimore has a massive conduit uh, bank uh, throughout the community. Uh, and you don't see Comcast suddenly offering better services in Baltimore than you do elsewhere. Um, and so as as we think about some of the communities that have been doing this over a long period of time, you know, what what can we say about those who have all this conduit available and we we don't necessarily see partners rushing in? So I would say that the most important factor in a public-private partnership is that both sides are true partners and that they're both really willing to partner. It's not enough for the city to build assets and make those assets available and offer to support the private partner in every way it can if the private partner is not willing and able to truly invest in the city. That's a really important factor. If you don't have a partner that really is going to make a massive investment in your community, massive being a relative term, relative to the the scale of your community. If you don't have that private partner on the other side, these strategies really aren't going to make a difference. There are people who have questioned the, the significant concessions that Kansas City, for example, made to Google Fiber as a partner. What was done in return was extremely substantial on Google Fiber's part. And making those assets available to Google made enormous sense because Google clearly was willing to invest in that community. I would feel very different about a situation where a community made assets and processes and so on amenable to a provider who was not investing and who perhaps was just continuing to um, operate legacy systems, but was looking for something that amounted to subsidy. That's a very different situation. A community that, that makes these efforts is going to be better off regardless, because it will be in a better position that even if it does not find a private partner, it'll be able to, to build its own network out and ensure that its needs are met uh, by itself. 
um, you know, that even if you do all this, you may not, uh, it may not pay off in terms of getting a partner, but you'll be set up to do it yourself. Absolutely. This, this may not attract a partner. I, we, unfortunately, we have not seen dozens of companies emerge in this market who are willing to invest in fiber to the home in a competitive way. We, we, that is, I mean, that's the reason why public sector action is necessary, is that the private markets are not stepping up to what we believe is the need. Um, so there is no guarantee that a private partner will emerge. We are in the very early days of seeing what those frameworks look like and hoping that companies who see Google's success come into this market. But even if there is no private partner, I think communities can make a big difference for themselves by building these assets and building toward a future. Um, I'm, I'm just more skeptical if they make assets available to an entity that may already be in the community but doesn't plan to build, doesn't plan to invest. In that case, you know, it's considerable public subsidy. That's okay. Just make sure that your partner is actually um, tangoing as much as you are. You and I talk a lot about partners, and the reason that we do is because we're aware that many local governments would prefer to work with a partner. Um, I don't think either one of us, I, I certainly know that I would not suggest that a community should have to seek a partner first. I think um, I would say that a community that wants to build a network itself should be free to do so if that's what it chooses. Um, but we, I think we just recognize that many communities would prefer to work with someone. And so that's why we spend a lot of time talking about that rather than um, focusing on what communities can just do out of the gate by themselves if they so choose. Uh, we're in total agreement there. Any community that wants itself to build and operate a network, meet the needs of its community, and take its future into its own hands should be able to do so and should be applauded for doing so. No question in my mind about that. And the only the only people who should be empowered to make that decision are the voters and the elected representatives of that community, not those of us sitting in Washington, not anybody in the state capitol, and not a company located seven states away. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Joanne. I, I really appreciate it on a day that you're totally snowed in. Um, it's, it's wonderful that we're able to talk. Thanks, Chris. Great talking to you, and I'm going to go shovel now. You can download CTC's publication at ctcnet.us. While you're there, we encourage you to check out some of the other resources they make available to interested communities. CTC has published case studies on a variety of communities, as well as checklists and guidebooks to help you develop your approach. We would like to hear your ideas for the Broadband Bits podcast. If there's a topic that interests you, feel free to email us. Write to podcast at muninetworks.org. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at CommunityNets. This show was released on February 25th, 2014. Thank you to the group Valley Lodge for their song, Sweet Elizabeth, licensed using Creative Commons. Have a great day.